see everybody this morning. Um, anybody cold? Listen, some of you guys are with me. When it comes to October, I'm not from here, but even after 20 years, by the time that we get to October, I feel like we ought to feel cool in the morning. So I just wanted to share some of that with you all today. So for those of you that are thankful, you're welcome. For those of you that are not, you can repent of your sins later, I think. <laughs> Does everybody have their communion stuff? If you didn't grab one on your way in, we'll, we'll, get a, uh, we'll get somebody to grab the basket and pass them around. So just kind of hold your hand up here in just a second, and they'll get those to you. If you are a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for being here. Um, especially if it's your first time and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Bill and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table and we would absolutely love to connect with you. Um, the easiest way to do that is to text the word welcome to 817-755-1668. Um, what we want to do is find out who you are. We want to begin to build a relationship with you. We want to find out how we can help you take the next steps um, in your faith wherever you're at in your journey. Um, if I didn't meet you on your way in, if you have any questions about anything that you hear this morning or any questions about the church, or maybe if you've been here a few times and you're ready to get uh, more connected and you want to find out about groups um, and different things like that, please let us know this morning. I'll be available in the uh, lobby after the service this morning. Wayne will be around. You can maybe grab Cody after the service this morning as well. Um, we're glad that you are here. Let me pray for us. And we'll get into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, thanks for just revealing yourself to us. As we've sung this morning, you are um, the only one, the God who is above everything. Um, you are before everything and above everything. But yet, at the same time, you saw us as human beings made in your image, who were lost and without hope, and you chose to send your one and only Son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sin. Um, and so, Father, thanks for the love that you've extended to us. And I pray this morning that you would help us to understand the significance of that truth as we spend a few minutes in your word. Um, God, I, I pray that you would help us to not be distracted by things that uh, might be going on um, around us this morning or things that are going to happen later today, but that we would be able to hear from you. I, I pray, Father, through the work of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us and make us more like our Savior Jesus. Um, may that be the, the desire of our hearts, to, to know Jesus and be made more like him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I wonder if you ever feel like you're not enough. You're not good enough, you don't have enough energy, you don't have enough time. I want you to listen to this story. Mike believed that he had a good life and felt lucky for all the things that he had. He was married to a loving wife, had a great job, owned a nice house, and had three healthy kids. And despite all his good fortune, Mike could not shake the nagging feeling that he wasn't enough. I should be more successful should make more money. I should be one of my bosses. I should have a graduate degree. I should have a bigger house. I should have more friends. These were just some of the shoulds that plagued him on a regular basis. I wonder how often you have those kinds of thoughts. I should be here. I should have accomplished that. I should be further along. And maybe as you think about the only reason that you're not where you think you ought to be, it comes down to the fact that you just feel like 
you're not enough. These are the words of a licensed professional counselor. He says, if you could follow my brain over the course of a year, you might hear any of the following chapters at some point. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough father. I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good enough counselor. I don't work hard enough. I work too much. I'm not a good enough son. I'm not a good enough friend. I'm too short. I'm too lazy. I'm not responsible enough. And he goes on to say, do these thoughts sound familiar to you? Probably. And I would consider myself a fairly, fairly well-adjusted. They're familiar to most of my friends, and I have pretty well-adjusted friends as well. Many of my friends are counselors themselves, but the ability to conjure up negative self-image is just a part of the human experience. I wonder what your not-enough list looks like. I have one. I mean, I'll be honest, I can relate to almost everything that that counselor said. There are times where I feel like I'm not a good enough husband, not a good enough father, not a good enough pastor, not a good enough leader. There are times that I feel like I work too much, but then there are times where I feel like I don't work enough. I feel too lazy sometimes. I just feel like I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I'm just not enough. And when you get stuck in that thought cycle, it can be really debilitating because you begin to question everything. Now, I will tell you this. If we were to continue to read from those articles that I read excerpts from this morning, here is what you would find in those articles. You need to dismiss that negative talk and replace the negative self-talk with positive self-talk because the reality is, though you feel the way that you do, the truth is you are enough. And I don't want to get into the psychology of it. I don't feel like I'm an expert enough in that to comment on it, but I want to tell you something that I think is true. I'm going to tell you something that I think is true, but it is not popular. You will not hear this much in the world that we live in today, but you need to know this. The reason that you feel like you're not enough is because you aren't. But there's good news in this. You aren't enough, but Jesus is. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're, we're beginning a new series together called Enough, and over the next several weeks, we're going to We'll be looking at the events that led up to the crucifixion. We're going to work our way through the resurrection of Jesus as well in Luke's gospel. Um, and here's what I hope that we find week after week after week, that Jesus did what he did because we could not do anything to earn a relationship with God. Where we were not enough, we could never be enough, Jesus was enough for us. Where we could do nothing to earn a relationship with God, Jesus accomplished everything. We aren't enough, but Jesus is. And so today we're going to begin in the upper room as Jesus gathered together with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. And it was there that Jesus instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to make some comments around the passage of Scripture we're going to look at in just a second, and then we're going to finish the service by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, or communion together. So hopefully you've got your communion elements, and we'll get to that 
um, toward the end of the service this morning. But the passage that we're looking at today is in Luke 22. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke 22. I'll read for us in just a second, verses 14 through 23. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Uh, or if you are a YouVersion Bible app user, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. But here is Luke 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, he being Jesus, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup. After giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After the supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. I was thinking about this the other day. It's interesting. Just the fact that we are here in Texas, living where we do, if I were to ask you, who Jesus is and what he did, likely all of us would have some idea of how to answer that question. Like even if it's the first time that you've ever walked through the doors of a church, you are at least somewhat familiar with Jesus. I mean, you just drive down the highway long enough and you see Jesus in big letters on the billboard. And so for probably most of us, if I were to ask the question, who is Jesus and what did he do? you would know the answer that I was looking for. And you would say something along the lines of, well, Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross. You may not believe that. You may not know why we say that he did that. You may not know how he ended up there. But just by nature of being here, most of us know the, the answer that I would expect is something along the lines of Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross. But you might not have any idea how he ended up there. And in some ways, on the front end of that, it would appear to be somewhat surprising. It was unexpected, even for those who were the closest followers of Jesus. This was not something that they expected, that Jesus would suffer and die. Now, it doesn't mean that the disciples didn't believe who Jesus was. They absolutely believed that he was the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Savior. But when they thought about the Messiah, they thought about a king and a kingdom. And so they looked at all these promises in the Old Testament about one day the Messiah would come, and they thought king and kingdom. They thought somebody who would reestablish the nation of Israel, bring it back to prominence, and lead the people back to God again. And so that was the expectation, not just of the disciples, but really everybody at the time of Jesus. They knew that Messiah was going to come, but they were thinking king and kingdom, and so they would have never expected for Jesus to suffer and die. 
And so in some ways, when that's the expectation, when you think king and kingdom, and you see Jesus suffer and die, well, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, maybe that wasn't supposed to happen. And in fact, this is a, a, a criticism of Christianity sometimes, that, you know, the winners write history, and so ultimately the church won, and so it could rewrite history a little bit, so that the crucifixion, the cross just kind of played into things, but really from the critics on the outside looking in, it was just the church making lemonade out of lemons because this wasn't it. But I want you to know the cross wasn't unexpected. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't an adjustment to the original plan. This was always God's plan and purpose for Jesus to suffer and die for us. As Jesus gathered together with his disciples in the upper room to partake in what is often referred to as the Last Supper, uh, after the famous painting, this was a highly significant event. It's really interesting to, to see this in the life of Jesus, that at the early part of Jesus' ministry, it's like he did this, and then he went here and did that, and sometimes there may be weeks or even months in between these events, but by the time we get towards the end of Jesus' life, time slows down. So much so that with what happened in the upper room as Jesus gathered with his disciples, when we put the pieces of all the Gospels together, the life stories of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is as if we have a moment-by-moment account. Everything that took place in the upper room was highly, highly significant. And so I want to make sure that we don't miss just a couple of the details that I think are really significant in the passage that we looked at and so it says first that when the hour came, he reclined at the, at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It says, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover. He, like Jesus was looking forward to this moment. He was excited about this opportunity to gather together. And he says, I was fervently looking forward to this time before I suffer. See, while it was an unexpected turn of events, ultimately the cross was that for the disciples, the reality is they should have known. They should have known because Jesus told them. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He said, I'm so glad that we get to share this time together before I suffer. And it becomes even more clear later when Jesus takes these two elements that are part of the Passover and gives them meaning towards his death because he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he shared with them that it, the cup represents, he said, it's the covenant in my blood, this new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was getting ready to go to the cross, though it was surprising to the disciples. It shouldn't have been because he'd been preparing them for his death. But because their expectations were king and kingdom, though we would look at it and say the language is plain, the disciples missed it. And so Jesus would talk about his death and they would just reinterpret it like it's some grand metaphor about something, but there's no way that Jesus could ever die. But I want you to know this was always a part of God's plan. We see it in the words of Jesus. We also see it in the prophecy in the Old Testament. 
There's these prophecies about the coming of the Messiah or what the Messiah would come and do. And some of those prophecies talk about his suffering. In fact, the first one is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 comes right after the fall. So just after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, sin enters the world, God made a promise. Genesis 3.15 is sometimes referred to as the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. It's the first good news that God would one day send a Messiah, somebody to come and make all of the wrong things right again. And so Genesis 3.15 says that the seed of the woman, this is the, the promise of the Messiah, would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but you will strike his heel. So in some way, there would be a wounding of this one who was to come, but he would deal the death blow to sin and evil forever. Later, we read another prophecy in the book of Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah 53. The book of Isaiah is filled with prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, what the circumstances would be, and all of that. And then in Isaiah 53, we read about his suffering. See, people should have seen this coming. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, he says this, Now listen to these words, Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. Now listen to this, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed, Because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, turned to our own way, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. While everybody at the time of Jesus was thinking king and kingdom, taking his rightful place on the throne, the truth is that scripture In the Old Testament, the prophecies pointed to Jesus' suffering and his death. We have the words of Jesus, where Jesus had been preparing the disciples, telling them this was what was getting ready to happen. We have the prophecies in the Old Testament, but even just more than that, we even have the pictures. So the, the pictures are the events that took place that prefigured what Jesus would ultimately come and do. It was a sign or a symbol or a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do. One of the clearest pictures of what Jesus would do was actually found in what Jesus had gathered together with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate. They were celebrating the Passover, which was an annual celebration of the entire nation of Israel to remember and celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And specifically, it was focused on the deliverance from the last plague, the plague of death. God, through Moses, warned the people that the death angel was going to come and kill all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. And that would include even the people of Israel who who were living there. But there was a way of escape. If they sacrificed a lamb, and they took the blood of that lamb and placed it on the door frames and the doorposts of their house, then the death angel would pass over. See, it was a lamb who was killed as a substitute for the firstborn son. It was a picture of what Jesus would one day come to do when the lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus died in our place 
so that we don't have to. So that's a really clear picture. There are others in the Old Testament, too, that prefigure what Jesus would ultimately come and do. I want you to think about this one, the story of David and Goliath. Now, this is one that I think probably most of us are at least somewhat familiar with because we know the story of David and Goliath. It's all about the underdog beating the highly favored team, right? Like, that's how we know it in the world of sports. If you've ever learned about the story of David and Goliath in church, likely what you understood or what you were taught from that story was with God's help, we can slay the giants in our lives. But what if that's not what it's about? See, we often read the story of David and Goliath and we read ourselves into David's role. And we think, okay, with God's help, then I can overcome the giants that are in my life. But what if that's not how we're to read it? What if instead of reading ourselves into the story of David, we're to read ourselves into the role of the armies of Israel that looked out and they saw this giant that they refused to fight against, they were scared to death to fight against, because they knew it meant ultimate death for them and there was nothing that they could ever do about it. See, if we read it that way, then all of a sudden we realize that in our lives we have an enemy that's too big for us to overcome, but we need somebody to come and defeat this enemy for us. And so as we understand the story, it's about the giant of our sin that we could do nothing to defeat, but Jesus in that role of David came to defeat the giant that we could do nothing against. We needed somebody to come and rescue us because we aren't enough, but Jesus is. So I want you to know the, the, the end of Jesus' life, ending up at the cross, that wasn't plan B, it wasn't something that was unexpected, it was always God's plan, because we aren't enough, but Jesus is. I want to point out another detail in this event. Jesus took the cup, verse 20, after the supper and said, Actually, I'm going to back up in verse 19. He took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, notice this, given for you. Verse 20, in the same way, he took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Understand what Jesus did on the cross. He did for you. He, he did so because we aren't enough. See, there's nothing that we could ever do to earn or deserve a relationship with God. It doesn't matter how hard we work. It doesn't matter how hard we try. But because of our sinfulness, we're separated from God, lost and without hope for all eternity. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what Paul is saying is that what we earn as a result of our sin is eternal separation from God. Sin could be defined as missing the mark. And so I want you to understand this, that because of who God is, because he is perfect, the only way to have a relationship with a perfect God is to also be perfect. And so God has created this bullseye of perfection that none of us can ever hit. And so as a result of the fact that we aren't perfect, we have missed the mark, what we deserve is death. It doesn't matter what we do. 
doesn't matter how good we are, in the end, we aren't enough. We aren't enough, but Jesus is. Jesus came and laid down his life for us. He took a punishment that was meant for us so that we didn't have to. He died so that we could live. A part of this may not make sense to some people. Like why, sometimes people think, well, why would a God who is supposed to be loving, why would a God who is loving punish people? Like what if we try really hard? Doesn't he take that into consideration? See, what we don't understand is that while God is a loving God, he is also a just God. Because God is just, that means that sin must be punished. But thankfully, Jesus took the punishment that was meant for us. So you understand what he did, he did for you. Now the question is, well, why? Why would he ever do that? It's because of his love. And that's what doesn't make any sense. The Apostle Paul in Romans helps us to understand a little bit of the significance of what Jesus did and his love for us. This is in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, meaning that you rarely would be able to find somebody who would be willing to give up their life for someone who is known as being a good or just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. And so this is, you might find more people who are likely, if they have received goodness from that person, they might be willing to lay down their life for that person. But neither of those things is what Jesus accomplished for us. Verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were neither good nor just. We were lost in our sin, but Jesus in his love willingly laid down his life and get the two words again, for you. What he did, he did for you. There are often times where we are plagued with the thought, I'm not enough. And I think it may be a gift from God to help us to understand and remember on a regular basis, we aren't enough, but Jesus is. See, as Jesus gathered together with his disciples in the upper room, he took these two elements that were elements of the Passover meal and gave them meaning toward the significance of his death. And he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me and the cup. He said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do this to remember me and as we gather together today, and in just a minute, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. In part, what we're doing is remembering the fact that we aren't enough, but Jesus is. That when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything for us to have a relationship with God. So I'm going to invite the band to come back. and We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together in just a minute. So if you've got your 
elements, you can grab those. But as the band begins to come back and, and they get all set up, I want you to think about the significance of the truth that we aren't enough, but Jesus is. I want you to think about how it changes your attitude and your outlook. Because the truth is you aren't enough, but because of Jesus you can be forgiven. You aren't enough, but you've been set free. You aren't enough, but because Jesus is, you can have a relationship with God that changes everything about your life and lasts forever. You don't have to be enough because Jesus is. Will you pray with me? Father, I confess that in our moments of weakness, when we feel like we aren't enough, rather than running to you, we think, I need to be more, I need to do more. Father, I'm convinced instead of trying to be more and do more, we need to look to you more. apart from you, we are nothing. But God, in your love and in your grace, when we could do nothing, you chose to rescue us from our sin through sending your one and only son, Jesus, who laid down his life on the cross for us. And that wasn't plan B, that wasn't just an accident, it was something that was in your infinite wisdom, it was a part of your plan from the very beginning. truth, not enough, but Jesus is, and may that truth transform our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.